1843, here in America, a man named William Miller decided that he knew the exact day when Jesus was going to return to earth. Now, Miller was no screaming fanatic. He was a middle-aged farmer who had lived in upstate New York, and he had served as a captain in the War of 1812. Also, he had been sheriff for his local community, clearly a very serious man. Miller had been a deist, but in 1816 he converted to Christianity. After his conversion, Miller began seriously studying the Bible. He loved it. In particular, he focused on the book of Daniel. As he studied, he began doing rather esoteric mathematical calculations. Based upon these, he believed that God would cleanse the whole world by fire in the fall of 1843, about 25 years in his future. And before this occurred, Jesus would return to earth in the second coming. At first, Miller was reluctant to talk about his conclusions, but he began to feel that God was directing him to do so. In 1828, he shared his calculations with neighbors. From there, he went to local churches. His notoriety grew quickly. It took a big jump when he published his conclusions. Out of this came invitations to large churches. In New Hampshire, he met a Baptist pastor who saw the potential of this message and became his agent. Miller began speaking to large groups with a huge chart behind him that lay out his calculations. In a very short time, his efforts turned into the Millerite movement, with thousands and thousands of Christians placing their entire faith in his predictions. But his followers weren't satisfied. They pushed him to predict a specific day for Jesus' return. Reluctantly, he calculated that it would be March 21st of 1844, but he said there could be some variance, so people should be faithful. Well, as the time drew near, thousands sold their homes, left their businesses, and stopped working in preparation for the great event. Obviously, that date came and nothing happened. Saying he made a small error, Miller recalculated, this time specifying October 22nd, 1844, as the day of the return. When that day passed, Miller was utterly repudiated and died in obscurity in 1849. Needless to say, his followers were mocked and some were physically attacked. Many became bitter and rejected the Christian faith altogether. However, a tiny group remained faithful. They came to believe that Miller had been right about the purging with fire, but it had taken place in heaven, not on earth. Christ had not come to earth because his people were not faithful in observing a Saturday Sabbath. This group, led by a man named James White and his wife Ellen Gould White, grew into the Seventh-day Adventist Church of today, with Ellen White becoming a sort of prophetess for that group. This obsession with calculating the exact day when Jesus will return has continued into our time. So-called evangelists and prophets still make such predictions and foolish people still follow them. I remember a sad case that happened in the early 80s in Southern California in the small group of Christians who were attempting to work in Hollywood. An acquaintance of mine, a serious young man, did his own mathematical calculations and believed that he knew the exact date of Jesus' return. I can't remember the date he said, but it was in the mid-80s. He circulated his prediction among all his Christian friends. Needless to say, it didn't happen. Just like Miller, he recalculated and discovered a minor error. Correcting it, he projected a new date. When that came and went, he was so embarrassed that he left the area, and I've not heard anything about him since. William Miller, this young man, and many others get caught up in a huge delusion. Humans are frighteningly prone to believing illusions and delusions. This is The Burning Zone, and I'm Coleman Luck III. With me is my father, Coleman Luck. 
So, if we're going to talk about illusions and delusions, why don't we start with dentistry? Well, that makes a lot of sense. A couple of years ago, as you remember, I had some serious dental work done, and it was entertaining. I've experienced quite a bit of dental artistry in the past, but this time I tried something new. As you remember, I went to a dentist who offered twilight sleep. Anything is better than a shot in the mouth with a needle. It gets wiggled around while it's stuck in your gum. Anyway, an hour before the procedure, I took a tiny pill. Uh, we live an hour away from the dentist, so you drove the car. After 20 minutes, I was feeling very relaxed, if a little bit odd. Reality was taking a kind of 10-degree turn away from me. I remember getting to the dentist's office and sitting down in the chair. But after that, I was out. When the procedure was over, I don't remember getting out of the dentist's chair or going to the car. Apparently, I needed help getting from the office to the car. But when I was in the car, I assured everyone that I was in complete control of all my faculties. I do not remember saying that. <laughs> yeah, you were in control of all your faculties, all right. They said you needed to eat something right away, so we went for an In-N-Out burger. I think I have a vague memory of eating a double-double. Later, I found burger residue all over myself. Apparently, control of my faculties didn't include food management. My drug-controlled mind is a slob. After that came the hour ride home. We listened to a podcast that I put in because you were rather talkative, and uh, <laughs> I, I felt it was best to refocus your uh, attention. So we had, and we had some discussion about it. And I was happy to engage in cogent conversation, but I don't remember a single word that was heard or said. Memory doesn't begin until I was climbing into bed to sleep for a few hours. So here's the question. While your conscious or executive mind that controls everyday memory and theoretically makes rational decisions was asleep, who was awake and conversing? Humans are weird. It's almost as though two different people live inside each of us. When one goes to sleep, a different one emerges. When my rational mind was anesthetized, the other one that appeared was under the delusion that it was totally rational. I'm sure I could have argued that. Which is why I put the podcast on. <laughs> you, were, you were trying to distract me. What if my rational or executive mind had never reappeared? Did it reappear? I mean, uh, <laughs> I'm not completely certain that's happened. Well, you know... I could be living in a delusion, that's very possible, but at least it's a consistent delusion. The Bible talks about delusion. There's a mysterious passage found in Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1-13 says this, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together in him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. 
The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion, that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Wow, that passage is full of disturbing issues. So, someone is restraining evil throughout the entire world right now. People might find that hard to believe. They could easily say, look at how bad things are. This is restraint. But here is another disturbing thought. As bad as they are, what if that passage is true and evil has been and is being restrained? We have no idea how bad things could get. Well, the only one who has the power to restrain worldwide evil is God himself. So another question. If he stops restraining evil, does that mean it would happen all at once? Well, I don't know, but not necessarily, I don't think. It could happen gradually. It could be happening now. According to the passage, a great falling away is going to take place during this period. What does falling away mean here? The Greek word means to forsake as in a divorce. It means that millions and millions of people are going to consciously abandon the truth, divorcing themselves from it, just as in divorce at the end of a marriage. And they will always have what they believe is a good reason to do so. Yes, it could be all sorts of things. They may say they have lost faith in God or you know, whatever. All that means is that they have placed their faith in something else. It could be scientific rationalism, even what they consider to be cold, brave despair that doesn't need religious crutches. With all the evil in the world, there can't be God. We've heard that many times. They could fall away because they want to live without rules and what they consider the restraints of judgmentalism. There's all sorts of reasons that people fall away. Some of it can be political expedience. Some of it can be social pressure. Some of it can be mostly, I think, uh, pain and fear. Well, a great falling away has been taking place for well over 100 years. But in recent years, it has been accelerating at an alarming pace. Half the people in the UK now claim to have no religion. The huge cathedrals of Europe are little more than museums. In America, young people are leaving the Christian church in droves. But the falling away from belief in God is going to grow much, much worse. It could well be caused by a national and international catastrophe. People will say, with all the horror that's happened, there just can't be a God. At that moment, in comes the delusion. It will be an answer to the crisis that makes sense to them on a seemingly rational basis. We think that the seeds of the delusion have been planted and are growing right now. The full lie won't be presented until the time is right and international desperation has reached a peak. So God is going to send a strong delusion on the whole world. What is a delusion? A delusion is a belief or viewpoint that is firmly maintained despite being contradicted by reality or rational argument. In fact, those who are deluded think that any rational evidence that refutes their belief is itself a delusion. Well, as we know, there's a strong relationship between illusion and delusion. Often one leads to the other. So let's define illusion. An illusion is a specific figment of the imagination or hallucination that is perceived by the senses but is wrongly interpreted. Remember, a delusion is a belief or impression that is maintained in spite of reality. Seeing illusions that are wrongly perceived as real often leads to believing a delusion, a larger idea that is firmly maintained in spite of reality or rational argument. Why is this so? Where did our horrible human tendency to be deluded begin? We're going to present some controversial ideas. 
We think our temptation to be deluded started when a particular choice was made a very long time ago. It's found in Genesis 3, 1-7. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows in that day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves covering. Many people consider that to be mythology, but there are similar creation stories found around the world. They point to truth. We believe this passage is that truth. As such, it is a bare-bones account in very simple terms. You know the way it's presented in pop culture and art history. You've got beautiful, white, Caucasian, uh, European men and women, usually blonde, wearing fig leaves, and suddenly... No, they don't wear fig leaves, not (laughs) (laughs) real... Oh, you know, the, you know what I'm talking about—the traditional, you know, thing where they've got the little fig leaf, it's not true. not sewn. It's just perfectly placed. It must be pasted in. Yeah, like yes, like like pasties exactly. <laughs> Suddenly, a fat snake dangles down from a tree and says, "You hungry? These apples sure look good." She gets sucked right into the trap. Later, her husband goes right down the drain with her. Let's do some serious speculation. Underscore that word speculation. Now, we're not theologians or professional Bible scholars. We are professional storytellers. But stories rule the world. Good storytellers always search for motives. We search for logical causes and logical effects. We look for the subtext beneath the text. So let's do some story speculation about what might have happened here. Quantum physics tells us that many dimensions of reality exist. We live in one that is interpreted through our physical senses. It is entirely reasonable to believe that in those other dimensions, other sentient beings exist. There is also every reason to believe that they can enter our dimension at will. We'll be talking much more about that in the future. We believe that such beings have appeared in our dimension throughout history and continue to do so. Very often, they have taken forms based on cultural expectations. Also, culture has been built around them, especially religious culture. When they have appeared, they have been given various names that come down to us and which we have categorized as mythology. Based on those assumptions, let's tell a story about Eden. Into this protected place, surrounded by a wall, and why was a wall necessary? What was outside the wall? We'll talk more about that in the future. In this protected place appears a fascinating, lovely, interdimensional being who has taken the form of a serpent. Not the snakes we experience, but perhaps one covered with the most beautiful rainbow feathers. So this being tells Eve that she isn't all that she could be. She isn't living up to her potential. She could be like God. Now she and Adam have spent quite a bit of time with God. They've walked with him in the garden. One thing Eve knows, there's a big difference between them and God. He is beautiful, wonderful, powerful, and all-knowing. They are way beneath him. Certainly she'd like to be like that. Right there is the basis for all self-improvement courses that have ever existed. Now, Eve was told a lie that was mixed with truth, the best lies always are, and it offered a huge delusion. She could be illuminated, enlightened. 
She could move to a higher plane of existence. She could be like God, knowing good and evil, whatever that meant. Think about it. The words presented a fascinating mystery, and people love mysteries. Not only would she be like God, she would learn secret, powerful things. Wisdom must mean having your eyes open so you could see hidden things that had been invisible. This is the very definition of the occult. What happened when she ate that fruit? It was disobedience, the first sin with all the moral implications of that. But could something have happened to her experientially that to a large degree validated what this evil being had promised? Pure speculation, but a reasonable question. Was that just a delicious piece of fruit? Or might it have had strange and powerful properties? Might it have given Eve an experience of overwhelming exaltation and supernatural awareness? Of mind expansion that made her feel like a god? At this point, we need to take a side journey into your pineal gland. Built into your brain is a tiny endocrine gland about the size of a pea that is located deep between the hemispheres. It produces melatonin that influences our sleep patterns. Also, it produces a substance called NN-dimethyltryptamine, known by the letters DMT. Taken in large doses, DMT causes powerful hallucinations. Besides being excreted in your brain, DMT is found in a number of plants. It is the key ingredient of a shamanistic drink called ayahuasca. The visions that DMT produces are so powerful and utterly real in appearance that the pineal gland has been called the third eye and the center of the soul. In 1990, and continuing to 1995, psychiatrist Dr. Rick Strassman did formal research into DMT while he was a clinical associate professor at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque. In 2001, he published his research results in a book entitled DMT, The Spirit Molecule. Subtitle, A Doctor's Revolutionary Research into the Biology of Near-Death and Mystical Experiences. It is worth noting that Dr. Strassman is a Zen Buddhist, and all of his volunteers were experienced users of hallucinogens before they entered his research program. The youngest was 22 and the oldest 50. Many were graduate students. No undergrads were used. We're getting into very strange areas where serious questions need to be asked. For those who believe in human evolution, and we do not, what in the world purpose could there be in a gland that produces tiny amounts of a powerful psychedelic in our own brain? Listen to what Dr. Strassman has to say in answer to that question. I quote, The brain is where DMT exerts its most interesting effects. Their sites rich in DMT-sensitive serotonin receptors are involved in mood, perception, and thought. Although the brain denies access to most drugs and chemicals, it takes particular and remarkable fancy to DMT. It is not stretching the truth to suggest that the brain hungers for it. End quote. Dr. Strassman asks this question, quote, What is DMT doing in our bodies? And more specifically, let's ask why do we make DMT in our bodies? Here is his answer, quote, Because it is the spirit molecule. What then is a spirit molecule? What must it do and how might it do it? I continue to quote, A spirit molecule needs to elicit, with reasonable reliability, certain psychological states we consider spiritual. These are feelings of extraordinary joy, timelessness, and a certainty that what we are experiencing is more real than real. End quote. Now listen carefully to what else he says. Quote, Such a substance may lead us to an acceptance of the coexistence of opposites, such as life and death, good and evil, 
a knowledge that consciousness continues after death, a deep understanding of the basic unity of all phenomena, and a sense of wisdom or love pervading all existence. End quote. He goes on, A spirit molecule also leads us to spiritual realms. These worlds usually are invisible to us and our instruments and are not accessible using our normal state of consciousness. However, just as likely as the theory that these worlds exist only in our minds is that they are, in reality, outside of us and freestanding. If we simply change our brain's receiving abilities, we can apprehend and interact with them. Dr. Strassman continues, Furthermore, keep in mind that a spirit molecule is not spiritual in and of itself. It is a tool or a vehicle. Think of it as a tugboat, a chariot, a scout on horseback something to which we can hitch our consciousness. It pulls us to worlds known only to itself. We need to hold on tight and we must be prepared for spiritual realms that include both heaven and hell, both fantasy and nightmare. While the spirit molecule's role may seem angelic, there is no guarantee that it will not take us to the demonic." Dr. Strassman is honest. As an objective scientist, he has to be. Why? because of the reported experiences of his test subjects during his years-long research study. Many of those experiences were horrific, and even many of the ones that were not horrific and appeared very beautiful and beneficial were exceedingly strange and objectively disturbing. To his research subjects, the environments they encountered were just as real as our world. Listen to the description given by one of Dr. Strassman's subjects, a man named Aaron. I quote, There is a sinister backdrop an alien-type, insectoid, not-quite-pleasant side of this, isn't there? It's not a, we're going to get you, it's more like being possessed. During the experience, there is the sense of someone or something else there taking control. It's like you have to defend yourself against them, whoever they are, but they certainly are there. I'm aware of them, and they're aware of me. It's like they have an agenda. It's like walking into a different neighborhood. You're really not quite sure what the culture is. It's got a distinct flavor, the reptilian being or beings that are present, end quote. A number of the DMT research experiences bear a striking resemblance to reports given by victims of so-called alien abduction. People found themselves in scientific environments, sometimes in outer space. These environments were filled with equipment and experimentation on humans was taking place. A subject named Jeremiah said, quote, There were four distinct beings looking down on me like I was on an operating table. They had done something and were observing the results. They are vastly advanced scientifically and technologically. DMT has shown me that there is infinite variation on reality. There is the real possibility of adjacent dimensions. It may not be so simple as that there's alien planets with their own societies. This is too proximal. It's not like some kind of drug. It's more like an experience of a new technology than a drug. You can choose to attend to this or not. It will continue to progress without you paying attention. You return not to where you left off, but to where things have gone since you left. It's not a hallucination, but an observation. When I'm there, I'm not intoxicated. I'm lucid and sober." We're going to go more into this in a future episode, but suffice it to say that along with horrifying realities, many experienced what they considered lovely, healing episodes under DMT. The beings they met reassured them that everything was fine in their lives. They had nothing to worry about either now or in the future. 
Their lives were secure. Some experienced exaltation. But in the middle of the best of it, the beings they met presented themselves as all sorts of weird creatures, including everything from machine elves, clowns, aliens, insects, and more. Several years ago, a documentary was done about Dr. Strassman's work with DMT. The disturbing thing about it for me was that all of the experiences they presented were beautiful and positive. They didn't include any of the horrifying and disturbing ones. Why was he afraid to talk about the very dark side of DMT in that film? And I believe you can see that on Netflix. That's right. One last note about this. A few years ago, I spoke to a group. During the talk, I discussed DMT and its implications. A short time later, I received an email from a man. He told me that his son, a Christian, had taken DMT. Why he did this, I do not know. Young men do insane things. When he entered the other dimension, he was met by beings who raged at him, screaming that he was a Christian and didn't belong there. They proceeded to beat him up. Needless to say, he never took DMT again. So, what are we to make of all this? Let's look at it from the standpoint of story. Buried in our brains is a gland that, when energized with enough DMT, apparently, can open our eyes to other realities. God created that gland and put it in us. Within the brains of Adam and Eve, it was in perfect original form. Why was it there? Could it be that God wanted them to be able to experience his presence in any reality that he wanted to show them and this was the means? Was it meant to be a bridge between physical and heavenly dimensions? Imagine that when Eve actually ate the fruit, an overwhelming amount of DMT took her into a dimension controlled by evil, but that looked ravishingly beautiful. Imagine that she experienced exaltation that made her feel like a god. She experienced the enlightenment of darkness, and it was overwhelming. So of course she took the fruit back to Adam. Now according to 2 Timothy 2.14, Adam was not deceived when he ate what Eve offered. He knew this wasn't going to make things better for them, which in some ways makes his sin worse. He disobeyed God willfully with his eyes open. Then later he blamed it on his wife. What a hero. What was the immediate result of eating that stuff? They knew they were naked and clearly felt vulnerable. So they tried to sew together coverings out of fig leaves. They weren't covering their wrists and ankles. They were covering certain parts of their bodies. They were covering their sexual organs. About hallucinogens used by shamans in South America, the Encyclopedia of Psychoactive Substances states, and I quote, The hallucinatory experiences have a marked sexual content. Shamans described hallucinogens as all semen, and the visions they induce are states of sexual arousal and orgasm, often involving fantasies of incest, end quote. A number of Dr. Strassman's subjects talked about sexual arousal during their experiences. We think the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil having hallucinogenic properties is a reasonable possibility. If you look back into the history of ancient pagan religions, including, of course, shamanism, leading all the way up to our time, over and over you see at the heart of those religions hallucinogens being used to acquire vision, wisdom, and supernatural power. Why is the human race so prone to believing lying delusions? Could it be that our ancient ancestors planted that destructive weakness into our DNA with their sin? Our pineal glands are now very susceptible to the powers of darkness and the lying delusions they want to reveal. As a race, we are foolish, arrogant, fearful, and prone to self-gratifying fantasies. 
We love to believe lies if they make us feel good and promise to give us what we want. All of this is bad enough, but as we look toward the great delusion that is coming, we need to add another strange human trait that makes the whole mess even more lethal. As a race, we are prone to trances. We've spent years studying hypnosis, not in order to do it, but to understand the process. We've learned some fascinating things. To be under hypnosis means that you are experiencing trance. What is trance? Trance is the setting aside of the conscious, or what might be called the executive mind that guides all our waking activities, so that the subconscious, or what we call the childlike mind, can come to the surface and be revealed. This is a persona within us that, under normal circumstances, remains hidden while at the same time deeply influencing our conscious minds. You might think of them as conjoined twins. The conscious and subconscious share the same body and brain, but there are real differences between them. They work together, but for periods of time they can be separated. Now, we're not psychologists, and we have to be very careful about our terms. The fact that we name something doesn't mean we understand it or even that we have placed it in the right category. Conscious and subconscious are Freudian terms. We're using them only to describe two very different manifestations of human personality that are deeply mysterious. We all know what conscious means, but the word subconscious is not so well understood. We use it to describe a deeper awareness within each of us that is both connected to and strangely separate from our conscious minds. Subconscious does not mean unaware or asleep. It isn't unconscious. Quite the opposite. The subconscious or childlike mind appears to be the storehouse of memory. It remembers everything, often in great detail, that we've heard and seen throughout our entire lives. While it's a great storehouse, the childlike mind does not have the ability to make moral, ethical, or complex decisions. It can't even distinguish between what's real and what isn't. It absorbs all information without making value judgments about any of it. It can be easily influenced and manipulated. But here is the striking part. In everyday life, the subconscious or childlike mind is the seat of creativity and imagination. When a problem is assigned by the conscious mind, the subconscious mind searches for ways to solve it. People talk about sleeping on a problem. During the night or in the morning, often an answer appears. The subconscious mind never sleeps. In one case, after undergoing surgery, a patient was hypnotized. Under hypnosis, this individual recalled everything that had been said in the operating room, though she had been totally anesthetized. All creative problem solvers, whether in arts, sciences, business, or anywhere, have very active subconscious minds that assist them in finding solutions. All day long, we feed information into those minds. Have you ever been in a trance? a state where your subconscious mind was near the surface and the conscious mind had receded and was no longer in total control? We're sure you have. Now, there are different levels of trance. Trance isn't going to sleep, quite the opposite. Trance is the extreme focus of attention to the point where everything else is excluded. The deeper the focus and concentration, the deeper the trance. The more the conscious mind is set aside. When you are engrossed in a movie or a book, even when you're driving down a long straight road and lose all track of time, you are entering a mild trance. When you do repetitive activities that you've done a million times before, you are experiencing a light form of hypnosis. Yeah, and when you binge watch a TV series or see a movie in a theater, 
You enter a light trance where your conscious mind is awake, but the extreme focus of attention brings the subconscious mind to the surface. This childlike mind can't distinguish between what's real and what isn't. It accepts that TV series or movie the same way it accepts everything else in your life as a real experience and memory. This is why film and television is so effective. When your childlike mind is frightened, it is really frightened. When it is emotional, it is really emotional. That also means whatever values have been taught in those fabricated illusions called TV episodes or movies begin to subtly influence and define your view of the real world. As you make decisions about how to live, about what is right and wrong, the value of those Hollywood-created illusions are constantly influencing your choices and your morality, whether you think so or not. Now, we want to be clear about Hollywood. No one is creating film or TV so they can put you in a trance and make you believe things. They're just trying to tell successful stories. But they are doing it from their moral values and psychological baggage. And let's be honest, from personal experience, we can tell you that some of those people are really screwed up. This is very true, unfortunately. As many of our listeners know, we both spent time writing in Hollywood. I spent most of my career as a writer and executive producer in network television. I was a senior writer and co-executive producer of a TV series called The Equalizer. It was about a man named Robert McCall, played by the wonderful British actor the late Edward Woodward, who had spent his life as a top operative in the CIA. During that time, he had done some terrible things. He carried a lot of guilt about what he had done. Leaving the agency, he decided to spend his life helping people who were in deep trouble. He ran an ad in the newspaper that read, Got a problem? Odds against you? Call the equalizer. When people called, he would help them. We shot our series all over New York City between 1985 and 1989. The show was very popular, especially in New York. When we were shooting on location, crowds would gather. Fans of the show believed so much in the reality of the equalizer that they would come up to Edward on the street and ask him for help. He took to carrying cards with him of public assistance organizations where they might find real help. That show had quite an influence. A few years ago, you received an email from a woman in Australia. She told you that when she was a little girl, only eight years old, she would watch the show every week. She said that her home life was so bad, it was the only thing that gave her hope that somewhere out there could be a father who really cared. That series entered her subconscious mind as a reality, and it was a positive influence. That means so much to me when I received that email. Collectively, when there are great changes in what our society views as right and wrong or acceptable, unacceptable behavior, often those changes can be traced directly to television, especially hugely popular TV series. We're not aware of the influence these Hollywood illusions have on us, but they are powerful in restructuring all of our views. One of the most powerful and effective ways they have done that is restructuring the entire population of the United States' attitude towards homosexuality. No matter your opinion on it, presentation of homosexuality in sitcoms and dramas has significantly altered the entire perception of the nation to this issue. But there are unpleasant ways for the conscious mind to be set aside and for the child mind to appear. Extreme shock is one of them. It could be caused by the sudden loss of a loved one or a traffic accident. The conscious mind freezes, and for a period of time it is set aside. After a terrible crash, people may wander the road, not understanding what has happened and not knowing what to do. In war, even if you were a trained soldier, knowing the possibility of attack by an armed enemy, I can tell you from personal experience, when those first shots ring out, your mind freezes. This will happen no matter how trained you are. 
How quickly your executive mind recovers and takes action means everything. There's another way that the conscious mind can be set aside and lose control. That is through various kinds of torture that may include hypnosis and drugs, which can lead to what has been called brainwashing. In that process, over time, a person's entire view of reality can be turned completely around. Governments of the world, including our own, have employed this evil technique. Which leads us back to hypnosis. What is hypnosis? Formal hypnosis is entering a trance state guided by another person who is a hypnotic director or hypnotist. Here is where we delve into the real mysteries of the human mind. It's well known that under hypnosis, the subconscious mind can remove pain from specific parts of the body. The subconscious mind can take control of the autonomic nervous system and stop blood from flowing. The scientists at UCLA have done extensive research into the use of hypnosis instead of drugs during surgery. There are many myths about hypnosis. Are there people who simply can't be hypnotized? From our study, we would say probably not. There are some who are much more difficult to hypnotize, but all it takes is the right atmosphere, the right attitude, and the right hypnotic director. The more intelligent you are, the more creative and imaginative, the more susceptible you will be to trance and hypnotic suggestion. Hypnotherapists prefer to use the word suggestion for what they do because they don't want to imply coercion. They will use the word may in the direction they give you, such as when you awaken, you may want to do so and so, etc. But they are implanting the desire within you to obey their instructions, so a more accurate word is direction. Under hypnosis, can you be made to do things you would not do under normal circumstances? Hypnotherapists are quick to say no. From our study, we say yes. But it would take a very skilled hypnotic director and many, many sessions to restructure your view of right and wrong and the desirability or importance of a particular action. In hypnotic trance, the subconscious mind can be induced to create almost overwhelming desires that will deeply influence our conscious minds when those minds awaken. A skilled hypnotic director will place triggering words into the subconscious mind before waking the subject. Later, even as much as a year or more later, when that hypnotist speaks those words, most subjects will quickly enter a trance state. If the words have been attached to an action, the person will perform as instructed without knowing why. If they have been instructed not to remember something with their conscious minds, they will not remember it. If they have been instructed not to see something, they won't see it, even if it's right in front of them. When we study the power of the subconscious under hypnotic direction, we must look at the work of a man named Milton H. Erickson. Dr. Erickson was a psychiatrist who was born in 1901 and passed away in 1980. Arguably, he was the greatest hypnotherapist who has ever lived. Erickson was trained in all the psychiatric schools of his day, but he wasn't happy with any of them. What he didn't believe in was spending years in psychotherapy lying on a couch talking about problems. While he treated some people for long periods of time, his basic approach was to find out where an individual wanted or needed to go in order to have a fulfilling life. And then Erickson would determine exactly what barrier was holding them back. His therapies were designed to remove the barriers. And Erickson's therapies are legendary. Seriously, I, I kind of view this man as almost like super-powered, having studied what he did. Whole organizations have been created to study and promote his work. Some of the things he did in the 1940s and 50s would not be considered ethical now, but what he accomplished shows the deep strangeness and power of the subconscious mind. For instance, a young woman came to him for help. 
Her problem was that she couldn't form a relationship of trust with any man. Consequently, she couldn't allow herself to fall in love. What she wanted was to be married and have a family, but it just didn't seem possible for her. Dr. Erickson discovered that she had never had a loving, trusting relationship with an older man. From her earliest childhood, there had been no caring father or father figure in her life. After determining that this was the reason for her inability to form a trusting male relationship, he elected a most unusual therapy. Using hypnotic regression over a long series of sessions, Dr. Erickson took this young woman back into her childhood to all the significant days of her life. These she lived again as though she were really there. Birthdays, Christmases, etc. But there was one change in all of them. Erickson inserted himself into her subconscious memories. As though it were real, she experienced him coming to visit her at her home and bringing gifts. Over time, Erickson built into her subconscious memories of a caring, loving father figure who was there for her at all her significant moments. As the unusual therapy progressed, she found herself able to establish a trusting relationship with a young man that led to marriage and a family. There are many such stories in the books written about Dr. Erickson's therapies. Here is one of the more controversial of them. A young man came to him who was a homosexual. He wanted to marry a woman and have a family, but he considered that impossible. He told Erickson that he was hopeless and not worth anything as a man. Over several years of unusual therapy, using hypnosis and other approaches, Milton Erickson changed his self-image and his sexual orientation. Eventually, he married a woman and had a family. Can you imagine the scandal if that treatment had gotten out today? Oh my goodness. People today would argue that changing sexual orientation isn't possible. That is the current wisdom. Dr. Erickson would disagree. I think we should make clear that he was not a religious man at all. He was simply a scientific pragmatist. Over a thousand pages of his research studies are in our library, and the model is clear. You came to him with a problem, and he fixed it. It's clear from Dr. Erickson's work and the work of many other skilled hypnotherapists that built into all humans is a powerful ability to see things that don't exist but appear to be real and not see other things that are totally real. When we are fooled by illusions, we can be controlled by delusions that grow out of them. And there's something else very strange about the subconscious. Under hypnosis, it was discovered that the subconscious mind can weave stories that it thinks are real memories, but never happened at all. If you think about this, you have done this yourself with stories and memories that you have told that you know are not quite exactly accurate, but that is how you remember them, even when you are corrected. Which means that we can create our own personal illusions and delusions about people and life that will deeply influence our conscious thoughts and actions. Is it possible that most people live their lives unaware that they are in a mild state of trance with their view of reality shaped by illusion and delusion? Psychologists at the University of Warwick in the UK under the direction of Professor Kimberly Wade conducted a study about memory. Over 400 people participated. This study was reported in the journal Memory. What they tried to do was implant fake but harmless memories into the minds of participants. Events such as, you know, taking a hot air balloon ride, pulling a prank on a teacher, or causing trouble at a family wedding. They didn't use hypnosis. They simply described these events as though they had been real. 30% of participants appeared to remember the event, even embellishing the story with more details of what had occurred. 
Another 23% showed signs of accepting the story to some degree. Now this is during an experiment where a false memory is suggested to them. Imagine if we want to remember something in a certain way. We are fully capable of painting any experience of the past in any way we choose, even creating false memories that we think are true. And we all have to admit we have all done that. We certainly have. One thing is certain, we never see these things exactly the way they are even when we are going through them. We aren't God. We can't see things from every perspective. As time passes, our memories can twist things more and more. You know what this says to me? We need to live lives of forgiveness toward others in our past. We are not omniscient. Even worse, our memories are prone to creating lies that will support anything we want to believe. This isn't to excuse awful things that people do to us. We should be as realistic in our views as possible. But part of that realistic view is knowing how faulty our memories are and how prone we are to believing things that aren't true. We can be absolutely certain about something that is totally wrong. This isn't exactly a wonderful view of humanity. We are prone to lying to ourselves, creating our own illusions and delusions, and we are vulnerable to outside control by any force that knows how to construct and manipulate effective illusions. In the New Testament book of Ephesians, chapter 5, verse 14, it says, Awake, you who sleep! Arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. In John 8:12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. This means wisdom having the ability to see and understand the truth. It's hard to stay asleep when there's a bright light shining in your face. The light of Jesus Christ awakens us from our illusions and delusions. It shows us who we really are. We realize that we are slaves to lies and delusions. This is because we are slaves to sin. We understand how much we need God's forgiveness for our sins. We repent of our sins and accept the gift of salvation given in Jesus Christ through his death on the cross. As repentance becomes a lifestyle, we examine ourselves each day. Our eyes are open about many things in this world. The lying promise that Satan made to Eve, God actually gives to his children through his Holy Spirit. We do begin to understand the difference between good and evil, and how truly horrible evil really is. Though we will never be gods, we gain much wisdom from God. As we look at the supernatural on this podcast, over and over one fact will become clear. The human race is broken and blind. It is chained, unable to live up to its potential. Sin and evil have destroyed us. Nevertheless, strange doors to surprising power still exist within us. In his book, The Holographic Universe, author Michael Talbot relates something very strange that he observed in the mid-1970s. His father hosted a party for some friends. For entertainment, he hired a professional stage hypnotist. Michael Talbot watched the performance. It began as expected, with the hypnotist giving various tests to the group to determine who would make a good subject. A man named Tom was selected, and he went into trance very quickly. It should be noted that Tom had never met the hypnotist before and did not know what he was going to do. What followed was the usual hilarious hypnosis show. Tom was convinced that a giraffe was in the room, which caused him great amazement. He ate a potato and thought it was an apple, that sort of thing. Then came the climax of the performance. It involved Tom's teenage daughter. The hypnotist gave Tom the post-hypnotic instruction that when he awoke, he wouldn't be able to see her. 
The girl was placed directly in front of him. When he was brought out of the trance, he was asked if she were in the room. He looked around. Though she stood right in front of him giggling, he replied, no, not here. Over and over, Tom was asked if he could see her, and over and over, while his daughter's giggles got louder, he said that he couldn't. Now, all of that is still typical hypno-show tricks. Then the hypnotist did something else. He stood behind the girl so that Tom couldn't see him. Then he took an object out of his pocket, keeping it hidden from everyone in the room. Cupping it in his hand, he placed it against the girl's back and asked Tom what it was that he was holding. Tom leaned forward, stared straight at his daughter's stomach, and correctly identified the object as a watch. The hypnotist asked him if he could read the name and inscription on the watch. He did it accurately. The person who owned the watch was not known to any of the guests in the room. Later, when Talbot questioned him, Tom said that he never saw his daughter at all. It just looked like the hypnotist was holding up a watch in his cupped hand. Now, as a mentalist, I have studied stage hypnosis and seen performances. I have never seen this test. My first response would be that it was a trick. Stage hypnotists often use stooges, secret accomplices from the audience. So the simple answer would be that Tom had been secretly recruited and knew what the man was going to hold up. But in this situation, that explanation doesn't really work. This was a small gathering of personal friends. Tom was a friend. Michael Talbot, the author, questioned him. Tom would have known that Mr. Talbot was going to use his experience in a book that he was writing about quantum physics and dealing with paranormal experiences. I agree. It's difficult to believe that Tom would have allowed a personal friend to use that experience as an illustration if it hadn't been real. If it was real, what are we to make of it? In some people, hypnotic trance can open the door to paranormal experiences and strange abilities. We're not going to talk about this subject in any depth right now, but the U.S. government has done extensive research into a paranormal ability called remote viewing. That is the ability of some people in a mild trance state to see physical objects such as buildings and other landmarks many miles, even continents away. The research involved placing the remote viewer in a semi-darkened room, then giving him map coordinates with the instructions to describe what he saw at that location. Some of those tested were very accurate in their remote observations. Trance is a tremendous power and influence in our lives, and all of us experience it. It can make us see illusions that appear to be real but are not. Trance can be most dangerous when it is experienced collectively. Probably you have seen films of Hitler's Nuremberg speeches. To us, they just look weird. They took place at night. Partial darkness can be important in inducing a collective trance. And the vast crowd stands watching, many in uniform and in formation. The scene is lighted partly by searchlights and partly by fires. There is dramatic music that assists in mass trance induction. We're sure if you had been there and spoken German, it would have been a mesmerizing experience, for Hitler's speeches were carefully rehearsed grand dramas. He put an entire nation into a trance, creating illusions of power and glory. From them drew a delusion that almost destroyed the Western world. But it doesn't take pageantry to induce mass delusion. All it takes is fear. Throughout history, lying delusions have taken control of huge masses of people, and those delusions have led to the most awful brutality, violence, and injustice. In reading the history of mass delusions, many of the things that have happened cannot be described except as satanic in origin. Most often, mass delusions appear where there is a large-scale breakdown in society. 
such as in pre-war Germany. People lose faith in formerly trusted institutions, leaders, and each other. There is a breakdown in the availability of honest information. This creates an environment of deep and pervasive fear. Then, suddenly, someone drops in a lie. It's like a deadly virus in a weakened body. Almost instantly, it metastasizes. We know how fast lies can be spread over social media. The lie is everywhere, and it constantly mutates into darker forms. The result is a vortex of fear that can lead to utter destruction. Formerly decent people become vicious beasts. To study the evil effects of mass delusion, all you have to do is look at the plague years of the Middle Ages in Europe. The Black Plague came in waves, sometimes with decades in between. Fear of its arrival was constant, and when it did arrive, terror took control. At times like this, lying rumors are like forest fires. They have specific points of origin. They don't happen by chance. Some evil person concocts a lie and tells it to others who spread it. During the plague years, very often rumors had to do with blame. A group of people had brought the plague and were consciously spreading it. Jews have always been an easy target. For centuries during the Middle Ages, mindless hatred was directed toward them. In 1285 in Munich, Germany, 180 Jews were burned to death because someone spread the rumor that their community had sacrificed a child as part of a satanic ceremony. So when the plague arrived, the liars were ready to blame them. In Milan, Italy, in 1629, rumors spread at the highest levels of government that people were spreading the plague across Europe through sorcery and contagious poisons. When the plague arrived in 1630, someone started the rumor that the Jews were poisoning the water supply. The rumors and terror spread faster than the plague, stoked by stupid, evil people. One night in Milan, someone or some small group began smearing the buildings with an unknown substance. Here is an eyewitness description. When people awoke the next morning, quote, In every part of the city they saw doors and walls of the houses stained and daubed with long streaks of I know not what filthiness. Something yellowish and whitish spread over them as with a sponge, end quote. Now we call that a satanic act. In the ensuing fear and rage, many innocent people were suspected of spreading the plague. They were dragged from their houses, beaten, thrown into prison, and killed. Here is an example of the horror recorded by eyewitnesses. It happened in a cathedral. Quote, An old man was observed after kneeling in prayer to sit down, first, however, dusting the bench with his dark cloak. The old man is anointing the benches, exclaimed some women who witnessed the act. The people who happened to be in the church fell upon the old man. They tore his gray locks. They heaped upon him blows and kicks and dragged him out half dead to convey him to prison to the judges to torture. I beheld him dragged along in this way, nor could I learn anything further about his end. Indeed, I think he could not have survived many moments." Unquote. This is what mass delusion can do, and we see examples of it throughout history in every culture. Very often in the cold light of day, the rumors and delusions are clearly ridiculous. In 1914, Canada joined the First World War against Germany, but the United States didn't join until 1917. During those years, rumors spread through Canada that German-Americans, at the time there were 10 million living in the U.S., were getting ready to launch bombing and espionage raids from America. At one point, it was rumored that 80,000 well-armed German-Americans were training near Niagara Falls for an invasion of Canada. This rumor was promoted by no less than the British Consul General in New York and prompted the Canadian Prime Minister to order an investigation. Quickly it was discovered that the whole thing was bogus. 
In Indonesia, between 1937 and 1981, over and over appeared the headhunter rumors and delusion. The idea was that a human head was needed to supernaturally strengthen various large construction projects and that the government had sanctioned headhunter teams to acquire the necessary items. People were terrified to leave their houses at night or to walk through the forest alone in the daytime. From headhunters, we could go to the sublimely ridiculous. Many of us remember the Paul McCartney is dead and replaced with an impersonator rumor that began in 1969 and went on for years, bolstered by imagined proof, hidden messages in the Beatles' music and album covers, etc. This was taken seriously enough by major newspapers that it sent reporters to investigate. It seems that the rumor was first published in the student newspaper at my alma mater, Northern Illinois University. In our scientific age, we are just as prone to illusions and delusions as in the past. The difference is that with modern media and the internet, they can grow to worldwide proportions in hours. So what patterns do we see in all of this? As storytellers, what conclusions do we draw about the great human story that is unfolding and, we believe, coming to a vast turning point? First, we have a mysterious, interdimensional doorway built into our brains, the pineal gland, that excretes tiny amounts of a powerful psychedelic drug, DMT. We believe this gland was meant for God to use to reveal His majesty and wonder to us through opening our eyes to the beauty of His interdimensional creation. Tragically, our ancient ancestors, by their choice, corrupted that doorway so that now it can easily lead into illusions and delusions by taking us into dimensions of great evil that may even appear to be as beauty and light. The opening of these doorways into darkness, by various means, is the basis for many religions of the past and present. Like our ancient ancestors, so many of us fall to the false promise of hidden knowledge, power, and a deeper illumination. Many of us believe that ancient lie that we can be gods. Second, it is clear that we are divided creatures, bifurcated in our own brains to the point that it's almost as though two different people live within us. We are prone to entering both mild and deep trance states in which we are deeply susceptible to outside influence and control. In trance states, we are like gullible sheep, believing almost anything that is told to us. We have a long history, both individually and collectively, of letting such lies lead us to destruction. Shock and desperation make us far more vulnerable to monstrous delusions. But it is important to understand that we have a choice. We do not have to be delusional slaves and blind sheep. God has made a way for us, through Jesus, his Son, to be put right, to have our eyes opened to reality, not by the powers of darkness, but by God's Holy Spirit who comes to dwell within us, giving us his wisdom. But for this to happen, we must give up our idols, anything that stands in the way of fellowship with our Father and Jesus our Savior and King. In America, this can include the subtle worship of self, the spiritualized worship of worldly success, and yes, the worship of false patriotism. The Bible says that in the future, we believe the near future, God is going to send the most powerful delusion of all upon the earth. It will be so convincing and overwhelming that if it were possible, even the elect, God's own children, would be fooled by it. When it arrives, many people will fall away from belief in God and His Son, Jesus Christ. Many will turn to the illusion of false Jesuses. Based upon the history of delusions, what can we imagine about this terrible period? First, it will have been prepared for a long time. As they sink into the great delusion, people will look back and perceive what they will consider to be solid evidence for it. 
overwhelming evidence that has been overlooked or misunderstood. This will create an historical, even scientific basis for their belief that the great delusion is true. In the past, when delusions appeared about the Jews that led to murderous violence against them, always they were based on centuries of lies and false evidence. When the people of Indonesia believed delusions about headhunters, those delusions were based on centuries of belief in the power of sorcery and evil spirits. Destructive mass delusions do not appear out of nowhere. They may be instigated by lying rumors that are presented as facts, but always they are based on lies that have been seeded in history. Consequently, we say that the lies upon which the greatest of delusions will be based exist right now. They are being spread right now, and people are believing them. When it arrives in full power, very likely it will come at a time of worldwide terror and vulnerability. The human race will be in utter shock, and therefore prone to trance. The systems upon which we depend for order and survival will have broken down. There is another pattern in the past that points to the future. Very often, built into lying rumors and mass delusions are a kind of powerful, dark hope. If you kill these people or do this desperate act, the plague will stop. If you kill all the aristocrats, all the rich with their greed and despotic governments, the common person can thrive. The Jews are not even human. For the world to thrive and even be saved, they must be destroyed. Such delusions led to the sacrifice by the tens of thousands of humans who had their hearts cut out, such as in the ancient Mayan and Aztec cultures. This dark hope led to the bloody French and Russian revolutions, to the Holocaust, and to millions of other murderous acts. So during the Great Delusion, we can expect to see the most awful violence directed against groups of people who are chosen to be scapegoats. Being the greatest delusion, it will offer the greatest false hope. The planet is on the verge of being destroyed. Certain groups are responsible for that. They stand in the way of global salvation. They must be eradicated in order for the world to be saved. From the past, we know that delusions are most successful during catastrophes, economic crises, war, plagues, famines, and other disasters. So, if it is the greatest delusion, we can expect some of the most devastating catastrophes ever seen to be taking place around the world. Jesus predicted that, just before his return, there would be unusual wars, diseases, and other disasters. People will be turning on each other. It will be the perfect environment for the ultimate delusion and the ultimate false hope to appear. But through whatever may come, true followers of Jesus will not be fooled. Which brings us to a vital question. Are you ready? Not just ready for the greatest crisis of history, but for all the desperate ones, the small ones that each of us face. Is Jesus your Savior and Lord? Have you confessed your sins and given your life to him? The Bible says that God is not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. If you have done that, God's Holy Spirit is there to give you strength and wisdom. If you haven't, no matter how intelligent you think you are, you are utterly vulnerable to the darkest of lies. Keep this in mind. There are many people who call themselves Christians, but who are not true followers of Jesus. They are worshiping other gods. So let's examine ourselves in prayer to the God who loves us more than we could ever know. You know, after listening to all of this, probably some of our listeners are asking this question. These guys are talking about trance and delusion, but they believe the greatest trance and delusion of all, that Jesus is the Son of God, that he's God come in the flesh, that he died and he rose again. That is the greatest and most awful delusion in the history of the world. Why do we believe such a thing? 
That's going to be an important topic that we get directly into very soon. We hope that you are enjoying our podcast. If so, please consider writing a review and sharing the link with your friends in social media. It would be greatly appreciated because we have no other way of building an audience except by word of mouth. And do contact us with any questions or comments. Our email is colemanluck at gmail.com. Until next time, remember, history had a beginning. It will have an end. Are you ready?